This is episode 64 of Cinescope. And sleep well in your beds, because if this thing comes true, there ain't gonna be any more. Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Blake Collier to talk about one of our favorite films, Take Shelter. Blake, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing well. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to <laughs> dive into this film that you recommended because it is new to me, and I'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, but before we do that, how about you reintroduce yourself? So I am a uh, columnist for Real World Theology. I write a horror column uh, called Oh the Horror uh, that is bi-weekly. And I write for sites such as Mockingbird and um, write for various other sites so whenever I get a chance. And so basically I um, my main my main bread and butter is horror films. But I also write about, you know, British cop dramas like Luther, um, various things like that. And so uh, I generally stand in the realm of the dark and twisted. And uh, there is elements of that in this film, but on the whole, uh, it keeps it more dramatic and less uh, uh, dark and twisty. So, um, yeah, it's... I uh, I enjoy every time you uh, you ask me to be on here and and I'm uh, and I appreciate the uh, the invite. So yes, sir. I mean, it's been just over a year, I think, since you first came on the show. We talked yeah. to the strangers, the strangers, back in October of last year, and then uh, Gross Point Blank once since then, because that is your all time favorite film. All time favorite film. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it just seemed appropriate. It was it's the last episode of October. And I said, Blake, let's get you back on to talk something, maybe not strictly horror, but something with those elements. And mm-hmm. so you said, how about this one? And so here we are to talk about Take Shelter this week. Sweet. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. And one last thing before we do dive into Take Shelter, I just want to send out a huge, huge thank you to everybody. Because as of today, the day we were recording, Cinescope passed 20,000 total downloads on our podcast host, and that is just mind-boggling. I have not been on that host even a year at this point. I joined uh, this host uh, around Thanksgiving, just after of 2016, and to be at 20,000 unique downloads since that point is just so humbling, and I'm so grateful to everyone out there who has ever listened to even just one episode. Even if this is your first episode, thank you, uh, because this is a a passion project in many, many ways. I don't get paid for this. I don't get any money out of it. And I put more money into it than anything else. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is something I love to do. It's something I look forward to every single week. And once again, I just want to say thank you to everybody who has helped to add to that number. Man, yeah, it's it, it's definitely a, a, a great podcast and it's worth every every minute of it. So um, I'm happy to hear that that you're getting uh, such high ratings. Well, thank you, Blake. And uh, it, it's great to have you as a semi-regular visitor onto the yeah. show. 
and helping to contribute to that number as well. So thank you. <laughs> no problem. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, let's just go ahead and dive in. We are talking Take Shelter this week. It was released on September 30th of 2011 and was directed by Jeff Nichols, who also directed Shotgun Stories, Mud, Midnight Special, and Loving. It was written by Nichols. And the music here is by a composer that I hadn't heard of before named David Wingo, who also worked on Nichols' films Mud, Midnight Special, and Loving. And the end credits features a song by uh, Nichols' brother, Ben, and his group, Lucero, called Shelter. The movie stars Michael Shannon, Jessica Chastain, Katie Mixon, Shia Wiggum, Kathy Baker, Ray McKinnon, Lisa Gay Hamilton, and Tova Stewart. So, Blake, what was your first experience with Take Shelter? So the first time I watched this film, um, I recall I had either, I want to say I rented it uh, at the time when there were still rental stores <laughs> around this parts. Uh, the last rental store just went out of business last year. Uh, and so it's all red boxes from here on out or, uh, or online downloads. And so I remember renting this film because the cover has a strange kind of um, look of a man standing there with this weird bird pattern in the distance. And it kind of reminds you of the birds, like Hitchcock's film. And it had a little bit of a mystique to it. And I was like, this looks fascinating, so I'm going to give it a shot. And literally, I knew nothing about Jeff Nichols. Like, I had not seen any of his films. Um uh, shotgun stories, or I think mud was out at the time I watched this one, uh, and I hadn't seen it either. And so I came into it blind. Uh, I didn't even really know Michael Shannon that well, or Jessica Chastain, uh, at the time. Uh, and so, uh, a lot of this was fairly new to me, like the people that were in it and the director and, uh, kind of his style of narrative, and so for me, watching this film, um, I just recall being like engrossed in the actual viewing of the film in the sense that like there are very few times when a drama just draws me in and doesn't let me go. Um, usually I can kind of check out from time to time during a lot of films uh, because there's either slow parts or there's elements that are just kind of take you out of the film. This one from the very beginning um, to the very end just drew me in and I could not look away from it. And so the fact that Michael Shannon's performance is just so mesmerizing and so intense and Jessica Chastain is just like, you know, her presence in a lot of films is so graceful and, and so um, so kind and benevolent uh, that is it, it's, it's almost uh, ethereal. Uh, in in the in her presence in this film, uh, it reminds me a lot of the Tree of Life, uh, the, in which she plays a a similar role in some ways. Um, so yeah, it's just a just a mixture of of the acting and the narrative itself, and then the fact that I'm a horror fan. Like there's very stark horror visions and hallucinations that that happen within the scope of this film, and it's not to scare; it's more to draw out. Uh, this this world in which the lead character finds himself in and without his choosing and so it's just there is something about the stark reality of the film itself juxtaposed to this kind of a hallucinogenic world that he sinks deeper and deeper into 
um, that is just so jarring uh, to kind of take and in, into one uh, viewing. And so I recall watching the film and just being my jaw dropping at the final scene uh, and being really moved by it. And uh, I couldn't quite put my finger on why it moved me, but there's something about the way it ended that just uh, struck a chord in me. And, and I'm sure we'll get to that later on in the in the podcast. But I recall watching the interview with Shea Wiggum and Michael Shannon after I had watched the film and just hearing them talk about uh, the film themselves and kind of breaking apart some of the meaning that they saw behind it. Um, they were they were of the mindset that they would not reveal what Jeff Nichols was kind of going for, but they had their own kind of uh, ideas on what they thought it meant. And it was fascinating to kind of hear them uh, piece it, you know, kind of piece it together. And so I think a lot of that, just the, the natural draw of the film, and then the fact that I got to hear a couple of the actors kind of just riff on the film and, and meaning behind it, um, added a lot of, um, I guess, passion at the time for the film. Um, I remember making anyone who was even remotely around me watch it at some point. <laughs> and uh, because I was just so passionate about it, I just thought it was a really quality film with a lot to say. And uh, as the more I've watched it, the more that meaning has kind of become its own thing, uh, especially within the scope of my own life. And so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a film that is just... It, you you may come out of it hating it but you will never you won't come out of it indifferent uh it 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 demands more than that like you will either love it or you'll hate it and how you respond to it will be passionate regardless of which way it goes and so yeah that's that's just my take on it i start i mean just to start at the beginning of all of that yeah um i'm was not very familiar with Michael Shannon or Jessica Chastain or certainly not Jeff Nichols at all either. I think honestly, the only Michael Shannon film I'd seen before this was man of steel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, unless you want to count groundhog day in which that's, he he was young and he was like in the background of a scene and a half. (laughs) And then Jessica Chastain, not much better. I'd seen her in interstellar and zero dark 30 and the help. And so I thought of her very much as sort of like a, an event actress, like all those movies were pretty big. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. not the help so much, but her character is very big in that film. And so I didn't really know what to expect from her in this one, since it's very much got an indie kind of vibe to it. It's a much yeah. smaller film in production quality in a lot of ways. And then Jeff Nichols, I really hadn't even heard of much off of his filmography. I think I'd maybe heard the name take shelter before I'd maybe heard, uh, Midnight Special. I'd certainly heard Mud because that was one of those uh, Matthew McConaughey roles, I believe, yep. um, mm-hmm. that he got a lot of notoriety for a few years back. But I didn't know anything about that either. So there was no notion for me of what this film is or what it was supposed to be, aside from the fact that, as you had imparted to me, it was so, it had some sort of thriller and scary elements and apparently based on your tweets a couple of days ago when you first watch it might wreck me emotionally yeah <laughs> i don't know and i just i didn't really have any expectation otherwise even just the title itself take shelter from what from who from 
I don't know. I, it, there's just, there was no indication. And honestly, a lot of times that is my favorite way to experience a film is just blank slate. I'm not super familiar with the people in it. I'm not super familiar with what it's supposed to be or what it's trying to be. And I just get to experience it. And there were a couple times while watching tonight, I thought, what if I just looked up this tiny detail or like maybe something happened and I wanted clarification. And so I was going to go look up a, a plot summary so I could review that part. But then I didn't want to see further than what I had just seen and accidentally spoil something for myself. So I was just sitting here and I was on the edge of my seat, like what is happening? And I had my head in my hand at some points, like, wow, this is some heavy stuff. And that was a big relief for me in a lot of ways, because um, as I was talking with you before we hit the record button, it has been a very busy week for me. Uh, I sort of had to fit in this viewing last minute. I, o- I almost watched it really late last night, but I didn't know what kind of film it was. I didn't know if I'd have struggles staying awake. And so I was a little worried that watching it tonight, I would just be sort of not invested. And it was just the opposite. So it was a big relief. I was excited to get all the way through it and jot down some quick thoughts. And even while watching, just sort of stream of thought typing my notes. So I was asking questions and I was like, okay, what does this mean? We just saw this. And so that must imply this. And really just exploring this film for the first time in a sort of live setting at my computer. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, it's that, that that's interesting to hear you talk about that. Because, I mean, there there is an element of this that if you, I mean, the film you watched, like, you could see if it was a really late night and you were super tired, like, you just don't have the emotional ability to take it in. Um, or the, really the, the patience, maybe, that you need to uh, really dig into what it's kind of uh, looking into. Um, and so it's, it's probably good that you waited uh, <laughs> till tonight, yeah. even though it was a last minute uh, viewing, but... At the same time, like there's there's just a lot that it asks of the viewer. Um, there's just a lot of imagery and, and things like that that it it's a film that demands much from its viewers, um, and and that's difficult, uh, especially if if you're a a viewer who only takes in like action films or superhero films or something like that, because this is not a fast paced film. It's very much character driven. It's very much uh, the the monumental shifts happen in the small moments of the film. So I, I got a lot out of my first viewing. I definitely feel like I, I understood a lot. I felt like I uh, explored a lot and I, I was asking the right sorts of questions while watching and some of those were answered and some of those weren't. But I also feel like it's a film that I could w- uh, watch 10 more times yeah. and get something new every single time. Uh, because I'm learning more. I'm noticing new details. Um, That was one thing I noticed, just diving into sort of the storytelling uh, aspects of the film, was how close of uh, an attention to detail you needed to have. Uh, Just right off the bat, he, Curtis walks into his kitchen, and he's talking with his daughter. He says, don't feed the dog. And he sits down, and this whole scene happens, and then all of a sudden he starts signing to his daughter, and boom, I see hearing aids or mm-hmm. whatever those are. It was a, a detail that seemed pretty obvious in retrospect, but it took something drawing my attention to it before I noticed it. 
And so the whole rest of the film, I was like zeroed in watching every single corner of the screen, skimming back and forth, trying to find every single detail. So I didn't miss something like that. Um, and it, it was just interesting to, to be demanded of so much by the director and the, the other people involved in the creative process so that I, I had to turn the dial up to 11 and really just notice every single thing that I was seeing and process it a little bit faster so I don't miss anything. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, just starting off with sort of the the mystery of everything. I mean, the very first thing we see really is Curtis standing outside and it's raining. And he just sort of looks up and he he is absorbing it for a second and he looks down at his hand and it's brown. Yeah. It, he, I was just, what what's happening? What's going on? I don't, I didn't understand for a long time that even that very first thing we saw was the beginning of his hallucinations or these nightmares where he was being presented with this uh, cataclysmic storm that was going to change everything. And from that moment on and going through and witnessing every single one of his dreams and hallucinations, we have this growing sense of dread. And what's so masterful about that is that there's really nothing shown to us that is in itself disturbing or scary. It's just the possibility of what might or what might not happen that really drives the tension of the film. And so I was, uh, like I said, edge of my seat wondering, okay, what is he hallucinating that's going to come true? What is he hallucinating that's not going to come true? Who do we believe? Um, there were a lot of elements that reminded me sort of of uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane yes. that came out last year, yeah. uh, where you have the same idea of almost n- not an unreliable narr- uh, narrator in 10 Cloverfield Lane's case, definitely in this case, um, but you have somebody who you have to trust or not trust Um the the details of some sort of outside for uh 10 cloverfield lane it was whether john goodman's character was telling the truth about some sort of apocalypse that was happening outside of his shelter or in this film it was whether this apocalyptic storm was going to come or not what do we believe and so it was just really interesting to draw those parallels because 10 Cloverfield Lane was a movie that came out last year that I really, really liked. And so I, I enjoyed making those comparisons. When you, you kind of get the sense that, like you said, with the first scene where he's standing outside and he sees the, uh, the fresh motor oil uh, rain hit his hand. And you're already brought into a world that is, is both familiar but off. And so, like, the cinematic language, like, the, the imagery that is present from the very beginning is 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 testing your boundaries of, of what you understand as real and what you understand as, um, at the time, like, when you first see it, something that's off. It, that's all you can say about it. Because you don't really know why this is happening or what is going on. And so you just realize that this is not the way rain should look. <laughs> and so... Right. Um, you basically have this this tension from the outset, and that tension is carried through uh, the whole film. Is like you were saying, uh, it's it's a question of is it, are these visions, are these hallucinations, uh, precursors of an impending doom of some sort, or is this literally a man who is going crazy? Um, and either way, um, he is not in control of of what's going to happen 
Like that's the I, I think that's the beauty of what is driving the narrative between both the reality and the hallucinations is that in on both sides there is no control on his part. He can't control his real life. He can't control what he sees in his hallucinations. He is being broken down uh, from his illusions about what he can he can control as a human being. And as we get into the narrative and, and the story, we start to see that that is those questions start to get a little bit more focused, and we start to see that maybe he can't be completely trusted, or maybe there's elements of this that. Uh, cause us to wonder maybe he's right maybe there is something going on uh, the ending definitely uh, alludes to a potential uh, tie-in there that there's something more to it than than what uh, we're led to believe uh, in the scenes prior and so um, yeah it's just like the the way the story is told kind of brings you into like a nightmare in process uh, and so, like, you're in the middle of the REM sleep uh, when you start the movie. And you don't know when he's coming out of it, and you don't know when he's staying in. And and basically, like, what the movie's telling you is the title. It says, like, in, in this world of um, storms, both literal and figurative, like, take shelter. Find something that, that you can find shelter with and that can either be human beings or that can be a literal shelter (laughs) an underground bunker and so yeah that's the the title ends up being like the lesson like you have to find something that anchors you to some solid um focused element that you can hang on to, that you can grab onto in, in your times of turmoil and storms. And so, yeah, it's just beautifully done. Like the, 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 the way the visuals uh, bleed into the story and cause you to, you know, go back and forth on what is actually happening and, and, and what is uh, being fed to us as a uh, lie or a hallucination. So it's, it's fascinating. Especially earlier in the film, we get these uh, masterful scene transitions where like in one moment we'll be witnessing a rainstorm and all of a sudden it changes to uh, Curtis in the shower. Like that's the very first scene, actually, where he he's experiencing that motor oil storm and he's just sort of lowers his head and is accepting it and is letting it drench him and then immediate cut to him in the shower being drenched by water. And then there's another one later where he is on the work site and he is drilling with Dewart and then it cuts back to Samantha sewing. And it's the same sort of uh, aggressive sound, but they're two very different tasks. Yeah. Well, and, and two different tasks, but at the same time, they're doing a very similar motion. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is Which is interesting, you know, just the... The visual language kind of ties it all together. Um, I, Nichols is is interesting in the fact that he his his movies read more like poems sometimes than they do uh, maybe a I don't want to say coherent because I think all of his films are very coherent, um, but there's just a poetic uh, language of 
both in the visuals and in the way he weaves the stories together that is like he's grabbing for something that's beyond um maybe what beyond the limitations of what maybe what cinema can actually do and he's just grasping for it trying to figure out something that that can transcend and so um a lot of times his films like they there's an element of um something other something greater than us kind of like breaking down into what we call reality and and disrupting um life and disrupting uh human the, the human story and so especially in this one you have the visions and and we don't know if it's just hallucination or if it's actually almost um a biblical apocalypse you know apocalyptic vision uh that he's getting and and so there's a play of that and what is what what uh, you know part of it for me is like visualizing feel if you look at like the the way prophets work in religious texts um a lot of times they look pretty crazy uh i could visualize michael shannon being like a prophet in that way mm-hmm. and and people would look at him and be like you're nuts like you're saying all these things but you don't you're not telling something that feels true to our reality and yet the, the prophets still speak truth into that reality even though it's something opposed to what we kind of take as as a norm the obvious parallel with Curtis and I mean I suppose we're diving into characters and that's yeah. okay with me. Um, <laughs> the obvious parallel is the biblical story of Noah. Um, yeah, this this guy who was assigned by God to build an ark to prepare for an upcoming flood, and nobody believed him, but he remained faithful to what he believed was true, what he believed was told to him by God, and he built the ark. And lo and behold. The storms came and he and his family were protected because of that. And so in a lot of ways, Curtis is this story's Noah. But where does this vision of this future come from? Is it coming from some sort of higher power? Is it coming from some sort of premonition? Or is it coming from schizophrenia? Um, Does it have any basis in truth? Does it have any basis in things that are definitely going to happen, something that we can trust? And the answer is, we don't know. And so as audience members, we're, we're asked to follow along and uh, live life with this unreliable narrator. And we have to learn uh, from each vision to each vision, each of these dreams that really just sort of debilitates him every single time. We, we have to notice the details. We, we start to understand, okay, every time there's a storm, we can uh, trust that we can't trust what we're seeing. Um, and so the the storm and the tornado and the dog nightmare is the first major one. Um, the the bird hallucination. We don't know what that is necessarily. For all we know, um, especially looking back in retrospect now, the bird hallucination might not have been a hallucination. Um, and then the the car crash and the kidnapping of his daughter dream and the levitating furniture. I mean, all these things. Each time we're getting a different piece of the puzzle, and we're we're starting to understand. Okay, when we're with Curtis, we can't trust everything he's seeing, especially if there's a storm going on, because we don't know what's real and what's not. 
And that is used to sort of play with our expectations as an audience later in the film, because lo and behold, a storm comes. And thank God he has prepared the shelter. And so he and his family go down there. Now, we've seen this vision of his justified, at least in a small part, and they're safe. Um, We don't know what's happening outside, but he is asked by his wife to let them out and he doesn't trust her. He still is trusting his vision because, hey, a storm came and we're safe down here now. So why should I leave this area that I've prepared because I had this vision and we were prepared as a result? Yeah. Well, and and you have this idea that like basically this is coming after the fact that one of his visions involves her um, being threatening towards him. And so the visions are playing against, they're basically causing him to isolate himself from everybody. And so like the dog, it starts with the dog, ends up going with his neighbors. Uh, eventually it's Dewart, uh, then his wife. So it's basically just knocking down all of the connections he has to the outside world, causing him to kind of run to the shelter of his own being. And a lot of what you see in that kind of in the storm shelter after the when she's asking him to to go up and to unlock the door and let them out is basically her saying you can't be you can't isolate yourself you have to hear me speak this you have to do this you have to open yourself to uh, the storms of relationship and the storms of the world and the, the things that you can't control uh, that's the only way you're going to get better is to, is to basically take that one step and, and basically give yourself over to what might come of it. And and so that's, it's just fascinating. Like the one thing she does to convince him is basically to say, your visions are telling you to isolate yourself. And yet what I'm telling you to do is to lean into us as a family and to lean into people and trust that um, the love that you say you have for you, for me and, and your daughter is enough to carry you through. <laughs> and so right. um, it's just, it's a, it's so compelling because you, by that point in the film, you, you feel for him. Like there's part of you that almost doesn't want to open the shelter either. <laughs> right and that and that's great filmmaking is that you can see it from both sides like you 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 don't trust him enough to say like ultimately that he's right and that going outside will um will do anything but just have sunlight but there's part of you that's like well but there's enough going on that i can't honestly say that he's wrong and so <laughs> so you you feel for him um, but you ultimately see that what what the drive of the film is is less about what is actually going on and more about basically him learning to trust his his wife and and the family that he he has and and to lean into that and it's more about the the drama of of connection and less about what actually is going on uh like metaphysically speaking and so it's just fascinating to see how Chastain plays that role with such 
uh, there's really no other word but grace. I mean, there are so many things that he does in, in a panic because of his, his fear of what's going to happen that puts the family in, in dire straits and in really horrible shape uh, financially, um, isolates them from the rest of the town, um, friends that they used to have start turning their backs on them, things like this. Like, he, he does all these things to them, and yet basically she comes around and she basically says, um, she has she has grace uh, for him in that moment, and she says, you know, I love you, and this is what it means to stay with me. <laughs> so right, uh, she she turns that that quote from him against yeah. him in a way, yep. not not against him against him like antagonistic. Yeah, but he he had said earlier when he first was honest with her for the first time in the film, and he says, "I promised myself that I wouldn't leave you, that I would stay with you." And now she's saying, well, if you want to stay with us, let us out. That's what that involves now. Yeah. And that's what leads him to trust her and to do what needs to be done in that moment. Um, we learn a lot about Curtis just in little snippets throughout the film. And one of my favorite reveals is how his family has a history of mental illness, specifically his mother. Um, and it starts out when he goes to the doctor and he's saying, well, you know, I don't don't actually have a cold. I just told them that. Okay, I, I I've been having these dreams and I'm concerned and all all these kinds of things. And the doctor's only response is, "Have you been out to see your mother lately?" And we wonder why is that important in this moment. And you start to wonder, is there some sort of history of mental illness? And sure enough, yes, there is. And we learn it was paranoid schizophrenia, and. It, it's just a slow reveal where if you're paying attention, you get it earlier than when it is finally actually just explicitly said to you. Um, it's one of those rewarding audience member things where if you're paying attention, you get it. Yeah. And um, it's just sad to see him go finally visit his mother and basically interrogate her and say, how did this begin with you? Because I fear it is happening to me and I don't want that to happen. Um, and he, he's, he's doing library research and he's taking quizzes and he's, he goes to the counselor and he says, okay, it says uh, on a 20 point scale, 12 is schizophrenia and I'm at five right now. So this is just temporary, but I need some more further advice here. Uh, or I really am going to just drive myself crazy. And uh, it, it, it's tough because when he finally is honest with Samantha you, you feel the anguish that he is experiencing, the, the dread of what might be taking him over, just like what took over his mother 25 years ago. Um, it, it's a tough situation and probably something he's been fearing the possibility of since he was 10 years old. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and the way the movie kind of leads that storyline into the, into the narrative is, is fascinating because it almost like by the, by that point, you're almost on the side of this is just mental illness. Like until the final scene at the very end, you're you're pretty self satisfied in the fact that yes, he's he's dealing with some kind of psychotic break or some kind of schizophrenia or something like that. And you get the sense that that's all this is. It's not really a vision from um a higher power or anything like that. It's it's him losing control over his own mind. And and so but then you have the final scene 
where they're out on the beach and um the daughter is the first one to notice what's going on behind him as they're making castles in the sand and she stands up and she's just looking in the distance and he notices and he's like what are you looking at and he gets up and he looks in the distance and then his wife comes out and she sees what's in the distance and it's this line of storms and tornadoes and all the stuff that he'd been seeing the whole time and the what <laughs> you recognize in that moment that both the daughter and his wife in that moment see what he sees and you're like that ending is probably something that would hack off a lot of people <laughs> because it's it, it's both it's both incredibly like meaningful but at the same time it's one of those things where it's like basically ripping the rug out from under you because it's led you to this point where you're almost certain this is the way it is and then in the final scene is just him like taking it and saying maybe maybe not <laughs> right <laughs> and so uh but that that ending uh is just like that's that sealed the deal for me the ending uh just because like even even in my own like the initial the first viewing even though i couldn't put my finger on what i liked so much about the ending i could guarantee you that i noticed the one thing that i think is actually the meaning of the film is the fact that they are now involved in his in his pain and in his suffering uh they see the storms that he sees and you can take that metaphorically you can take it literally doesn't matter they are now a unit <laughs> they are brought mm-hmm. together as a family and they can share in whatever is going on with him because they now see what he sees and now they can they can understand him and they can speak a language that makes sense to him uh and that's just so powerful um and if you're just looking at it as is this vision or is this insanity like that ending is incredibly uh maddening but if you just see what the, like the emotional language that's going on underneath that ending is so beautiful um because i think that's that's what nichols does his stories are always emotional first they're not really about um the who done it or what's going on it's about what is going on in the connection between the people and the film and what he's basically saying is yeah it could be either one but guess what they're they're all together now and they all are going to be on this weird and stormy journey together and that's what matters <laughs> right and and with all of them together now basically everything he's done throughout the rest of the film is justified yeah um because earlier like especially the scene at the lions club that scene is so tough because he's he's lost a friend and he's trying to not fight about it but then when he's pushed to the edge he he goes on the uh, basically the noah rant like every this is coming and none of you are prepared and i'm the only one who is prepared and then in the end of that rant i think he understands how insane he sounds in that moment he's he's raving like a lunatic in a lot of viewpoints um you you hope for some validity because he's been putting his 
friends and especially his family through a whole crap ton of of stuff and i mean he's a likable guy he's he's not um somebody you you feel any sort of hatred towards really or at least i wouldn't think anybody would um because he's such a sympathetic character and he's got this history in his family of mind deterioration and you hope it's not going that way and you understand how devastated he is that he thinks he might be going that way. But in that ending scene, he, he, um, he is justified. And what I think I love most is that throughout the whole rest of the film, in the moments where he was hallucinating and was uh, going too far in preparing for this upcoming storm, he panics. He becomes short of breath. He... Uh, departs from the situation, whatever it takes, he, he outright panics throughout the whole rest of the film. But when it finally happens, when his vision finally comes to fruition, the motor oil rain is coming from the sky and his wife sees it and his daughter sees it. He's calm and he's ready to act and uh, they're ready to act together, which I think is the, the most telling part is that yes, they're together, but yes, also he is prepared. This is what he prepared for. And there's no reason to panic anymore because he's there already. Yeah, this is something he knows already. And he's, he's, he now has the confidence of others uh, backing him, which is where the calm comes. Like before, he just had himself and he kept uh, kind of going inward instead of uh, relying on others to try to understand what he's going through. Uh, and so. Yeah, it's fascinating, uh, that ending. Um, but also, yeah, the, the scene at the Lions Club dinner is, is man, it's difficult to watch. Um, because what the beauty of what Michael Shannon does is just that intensity that he brings to that role makes you feel the guttural, like, agony of what he's going through in that moment. Um, I literally cannot breathe during that scene because it is so difficult uh, to view. Um, and everything he's saying, like it's, there's an element of it where he recognizes his own insanity, but the anger that, and the seething that goes behind it, there's some justification to it, because he's the one man no one believes. Like, everyone has basically told him, like, yeah, this is all, like, this is all easily explained. And he's like, I can't explain it. Like, if anyone should be able to explain it, I should be able to explain it. <laughs> and I can't explain it. So what's going on here? And so, like, no one trusts him. And and he gives good reason for that uh, with his family especially. But But you feel in that moment that you're like, yes, like, he needed to let that out. Because if he didn't, it was just going to eat him up inside and he was going to become a shell of himself. Ultimately. He recognizes how insane he sounds, but he also can't separate himself from it. Yeah, um, exactly. Cause he, he, he still thinks it's the truth. It's still something he has to prepare for, which is ultimately the most heartbreaking part of it. I think um, now just to, to sing the praises of Samantha a little bit more. Um, she, man, she is such a great wife. You yes. wouldn't expect her endurance, her patience, her understanding and supportiveness 
you wouldn't understand that or get that from a wife in almost any other film, really. Uh, she does with so much of Curtis's nonsense, to to put it one way, for so much of the film without really putting up a whole lot of the fight, uh, a whole lot of a fight most of the time. I mean, we get the sense that she could and she would and she does eventually where she says um, it, it's the scene where she confronts him in the bedroom and she says, you need to tell me the truth. If there is something that you can say that will help me to understand this, something you can explain, then tell me so I can support you. And he says, there's nothing to explain. And so you have this mindset of a woman who's, who's slowly watching her husband, the father of her daughter, this daughter who's gone deaf somehow and is uh, expecting an upcoming surgery. So she can hopefully hear again. Um, he's losing his mind and that is tough when they're in this situation where their daughter really needs the pair of their support more than ever. Yeah. And the, the way she handles his outburst at that dinner as well speaks to her as well. Um, in the sense that, you know, it would be very easy to, to basically just leave it as him ranting and and blowing up at this dinner. And yet, what does she do? She sees him realize that he sounds like he's a lunatic, but he can't separate himself from that, and he starts to cry. And what does she do? She comes over, and she puts, his, puts her arms around him, and she walks him out. <laughs> And, you know, with a full full of love and grace in that moment, she realizes that this is a broken man, and the last thing he needs is judgment. Um, and and that's what he's been given, uh, in that moment. And what she does is basically like what you know Christians see as as what God does, uh, uh for them, uh, this grace, uh, undeserved, uh, in the moment, but. Uh, basically saying like it's okay like you can cry you can burst out you can do all these things and i'm going to come to you and i'm gonna wrap my arms around you and i'm gonna tell you it's it's gonna be okay <laughs> and so right uh it's just beautiful like the and just the picture of that marriage uh with all of its um tensions and and flaws and things like that but neither one of them is willing to give up on the other and that's very apparent from the beginning to the end of the film. Um, they are very devoted to each other, even though they are going through completely different things <laughs> surrounding his his uh, his changes. So, I think that scene in the Lions Club is also the moment where she understands how real all of this is to him, where it's not just a, a delusion or lunacy taking hold. I think she sees that. Yes, he's a broken man, and uh, yes, he's sort of ostracized himself from the rest of their community and, by extension, ostracized her and their daughter, but she understands his passion for what is happening and his passion for her, ultimately, and for Hannah, because everything he's doing is for their protection. And whether she believes him wholly or not, she trusts him. And so right after that scene where the, the storm hits, 
it's no question. They wake up, they hear thunder, they depart immediately to that storm shelter he's been throwing all of their money into. Yep. And it's not a hesitation. It's just, okay, the moment you've been preparing for is seemingly here. Thank you. Let's, let's go through with this plan of yours to keep us safe. Um, and then from there, she, she has to take charge and help him to escape that. Uh, but she, she follows along when it is necessary for her. But um, the, the biggest moment for me, I think is, well, he it's he he's lost his job because he used the the company tractors and machines at his home and posed safety hazards, all that kind of stuff. He's lost his job, and he goes in and thankfully he's honest with her right up front. Tells her as soon as it happens, I've lost my job. I've been fired, and she slaps him and she leaves. Well, later she comes back and what's he doing? He's still working on that storm shelter, and he says, "What are you going to leave me now?" like giving her that out. And instead of taking that chance to leave him, she stands by his side, lays down her terms and says, we're going to get through this together. And that, that is the most telling moment for her. I think in the whole film, Uh, aside from the very ending where she sees the same storm that he sees, uh, whether it's a, a, a literal storm or some sort of metaphorical storm on the horizon of their lives. I don't know. Um, but in that moment, she she commits herself to him through whatever else happens in the rest of the film. And I, I really admire that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, they're they're almost um, they're both very strong characters in really different ways. Um, but man, that that picture of marriage is just so beautiful throughout the film. Um, there are so many chances he has for for her to just walk away and no one would blame her um <laughs> uh some of the stuff he pulls and and yet she sticks by him and she continue like she's very she's very uh very stern at times and and says like this is what's going to happen <laughs> she takes charge but she's always there by his side and as we see throughout the film like he's doggedly He's doggedly trying to not become his mom and to do what what she did to him ultimately as a child. And, and so there's just that that rub and, and the tension and yet the beauty of of seeing that marriage uh, interact even in the worst uh, storms of their lives. It's just beautiful. Well, as parents with children, what is your goal in life? I mean, yes, you're, you love each other and you're dedicated to your marriage, but I would think, and granted, I'm not married, I don't have a kid, so I can't attest to this 100%, but I would assume that as parents, your dedication is to your child. And so for a lot of the film, the struggle between this couple is she is looking out for her child in the sense that she wants to restore her hearing. Because it's established in the film that she had her hearing at some point, and she lost it somehow. We never get an answer to how, but they, they, they talk to how he still removes his boots at night so as not to wake her, and she still whispers. Um, so we know that, the, the, that she wasn't born deaf. So that's her priority, is restoring their daughter's hearing. His priority is protecting 
their daughter, period, protecting them from this storm that he is expecting to come. And so when they reconcile those two things and she understands the the depth to which he is going to to protect their daughter, she buys into it, I think. And that, that's also something that she realizes at that Lions Club meeting is that this is something he believes with all of his heart and he's doing it to protect her and their daughter. And when they reconcile that as parents, then they're on the same page. Yep, very much so. Very much so. Are there any other characters you wanted to talk about or, or mention at least? Um, well, I, I really like Shea Wiggum as an actor. Um, and I think even though it's a small role, uh, Deward is a, is, a, is a really good character. He's kind of a nice little, like he's minor, but the way he plays off of Michael Shannon uh, throughout the film is, is just really good. And he plays a very important part uh, in, in the dinner scene. Um, that's kind of like the, the, the final straw. Uh, whenever he confronts um, confronts uh, Michael Shannon, and so um, yeah, it's I just I like him as an actor. I kind of like the the laid back, almost every man that he plays a lot of times in films, and uh, he kind of has that self assured um, hick mentality uh, going for him in this film, which I I really enjoyed. Uh, kind of enjoy like I feel like he had fun playing that role. Um, in a lot of ways. And so he's just, he's a guy like he's, I know five or six guys exactly like him. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, I, I just like him as a, as a character actor. And, and I think he, he plays a, plays a really good kind of minor role in this film. Yeah. I think Dewart, uh, he, he obviously really cares for Curtis. They have yeah. a history together. They're spending time together all the time in work and outside of work. And when Curtis comes to Dewart and says, listen, I need to do this thing at my house. I can't give you a whole lot of explanation, but I would love your help if you're willing to offer it. And also it may not be legal insofar as uh, what is allowed by our workplace. And he goes along with it. He doesn't ask any questions about it. It's just, you're my friend. Um, You've asked for my help and I'll help you. And it that that connection that is so obvious through much of the film, just it, it's hard to see friends that close torn apart. And unfortunately, that's what we see happen. And we understand why Curtis did it, um, but that doesn't make Dewart's hurt any less. And so his actions at the Lions Club are the actions of just a deeply hurt man. This is the, their, their friendship has been torn apart. He thinks that Curtis is trying to end it when really Curtis is ultimately kind of trying to preserve it. He He's dreamt that Dewart is going to hurt him. And so rather than having that happen in some capacity, he's separated himself from him so that relationship can be uh, together mm-hmm. in his mind. Yeah, it can be stable. Right, right. It, it it will remain the way he's remembered it rather than the potential downfall it could have as presented in his dream. Exactly. exactly. So, I mean, we understand that, but we, we ultimately understand Dewart's hurt too. And that's what makes that scene at the Lion Club in instigating the, the raving by Curtis about what is coming uh, that much more painful. And he says, not here, not right now. Um, he's trying to push this aside. No, please don't, don't 
bring this up in this place right now. I'm trying to abide by what my wife has asked from me. I'm trying to, to live a normal life for just a night. And unfortunately, Dewart's pain just doesn't allow him to do that either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I think it's, there's just a lot of really complex relationships in this film and, and the way that both we, we misread, but also accurately read, um, how we stand with others and, um, what, how pain and how, um, madness and how, uh, basically just changes in life, uh, can, can push, put strain on those relationships. And that's just, that's something that Nichols does in all of his films is just show the complexity of, of what it means to connect with people um, in all sorts of ways, uh, whether between uh, father and daughter or uh, wife and husband or two guys who are friends, like whatever it is, he sh- he's, that's the central element of his films. Um, everything around it is, is, is dressing in a lot of ways. And, and He's really getting at the the emotional um, beauty of of relationships and and what they mean to us and and how they how they can shift and be in, in tension and and things like that. And so um, this is a stunning example uh, of that for me uh, in so many ways. Let's go ahead and talk about the music briefly because there's not a whole lot of music to talk about um, because basically what we hear from david wingo in his score is very minimalistic mm-hmm. but i also think it's very effective uh, the the main theme if you want to call it that or the main motif that you hear is like this distant chime effect and um i don't know what that signifies i'd have to watch it another time or two or maybe you can shed some insight i don't know um but it, to me it seemed like that that distant chimes was almost like a trigger for these hallucinations yeah I- I could see that for sure. And it's, it's funny because I actually haven't listened to the score apart from the film before. Um, and I don't recall much of the score when I'm watching the film, except for in those really highly emotional parts of the film where I start sensing the music, at least not really rising cause it's not that kind of score, but you kind of sense the the stream of music that's playing underneath those moments because it heightens the effect of what's going on on the screen. Um, really, the only the only music that just kind of hits me over the head is is the song by Lucero, uh, which happens over the credits because it's just so different from <laughs> what you've been hearing for the whole uh, scope of the film, and in, in that it's uh, it's more of a folk rock. Uh, kind of tune and as opposed to a very minimalistic uh, score and one thing I did recognize on this viewing is that the score is almost so ambient that it it weaves in and out of the natural sounds of like the jackhammer or the sewing machine or uh, the the birds or whatever it is on the screen like it's almost like all those sounds are a part of the soundtrack like they're all kind of a uh, ambient uh, composition that is both um, natural but also um, slightly unnerving at the same time. 
Yeah, aside from those little those chime effects that I mentioned, there's two big building moments that I uh, noticed. Uh, the first is when he's preparing to open the storm door into the sunshine. Uh, we don't know that at the time, but it, it's this big build of musical tension into what may be something, but ends up being nothing, really. Or uh, not nothing, but the realization that uh, what he was fearing was not real in that moment. Um, the other big build was into that finale where he uh, the, the storms appear. And it's like the it's it's a different kind of build though, where this this final time it sounds almost like a well, this is it. Like, you know that thing I've been preparing for this whole time? The music says, you hear that music, it says this is it. Like that that's sort of the sense I got from the music yeah. in that moment. Uh where it it's not an I told you so kind of thing. I don't think he he has that sort of look on his face. I don't think there's any sort of communication there that that would indicate that he's trying to rub it in her face like I was right and you were wrong. It's just yeah, here it is. You know that uh I don't know. That that's just the way that music felt to me in that moment. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no. I and it's so weird because like I like I keep saying like I I couldn't actually tell you what the music sounds like, but I know it's there in those moments. Um, and I, I, I do recall the rising of it or not really rising, but just the, the shift of the music, um, from what, uh, had been previous on in the shot before the final scene and, and how it kind of, um, maybe blossoms would be a good way, like a, 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 a completion or a fulfillment of something, um, that is almost, it's almost something that you pick up on uh, less um, audibly and more just as an emotional resonance. Um, it's fascinating how music does that. Um, it doesn't actually have to showcase itself as a player in, in the drama, but it can undergird the drama that is being displayed on the screen. Music is, is magical like that. <laughs> I agree. Um, now, let's go ahead and sort of round out our discussion with relevance and sort of takeaways or personal applications. Um, I have a feeling we've talked about a, a large chunk of these already. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, I know you were talking to me before we started about uh, a sort of personal connection you have to this film. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so there's... About 2013, I, uh, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's early onset. And so in that moment, I remember writing uh, what is now a published piece for the first volume of the journal that uh, Mockingbird puts out. And I was writing this piece, and I, and I remember writing part of it um, on the, basically on the eve of getting his diagnosis. We, we all knew that, that's a that it was a possibility and that it was a likelihood that that, that that is what was going on. And so I wrote part of the what became that article before the diagnosis hit and then the remainder I wrote afterwards and kind of just dealing with both the, the emotional elements of that but also the, the fact that it's early onset and so there's an element of that that has a tendency at times to be genetic. And I am in the gene pool of that. And so there's 
there's an off chance that this may be my life as well at some point. And so basically just allowing that to wash over me. And it was fascinating in that moment as I was writing those things. There was the image, the final image of this film shot to my head. And I had this idea that like what my dad is now seeing with uh, his his Alzheimer's, this is is the storm that only he can see. Um, he 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 can't quite figure out the shape of it, but he knows it's there, and and it keeps uh, coming like in, intruding upon his reality, and he doesn't know how to speak of it, and he is unable to uh, share that with those that he loves because we just we're not in the same situation we don't understand we don't have the language to speak um because we don't see the storms uh, that he sees and so just seeing like that that scene meant so much to me in the light of that diagnosis that i view that movie now in the sense that like what is going on there is i could care less if the storms are metaphorical or literal <laughs> Uh, what I am interested in is allowing ourselves to to find to see what those in our lives who have um, diseases like Alzheimer's or even uh, mental illness like schizophrenia or whatever it may be like being able to see the storms that they see and therefore basically living in their pain. Um, and being able to be there for them, uh, and and see the storms and recognize what that means for them and what that means for us, and so um, the movie rings true in so many ways emotionally for me. Every time I watch it, um, in the back of my head, I'm thinking this feels very powerful in the sense that even to this day, and I'm we're nearly five years removed from the diagnosis and my dad's state has gotten worse and in a lot of ways like his communication he can't grab words out of the air uh he you know hygiene is an issue all these things like there's the storms are getting closer and they're getting closer and closer and we're able to see a little bit more each day of what the what the shape of those storms is and uh, the hope and what I kind of wrote about in that article and, and what I've written about in a few other articles uh, dealing with my dad and and the disease disease itself is the hope that we have that eventually we will be able to fully share in the vision that he has of these storms um, and to be together with him in that moment, even if it's suffering and it's pain. Um, just that togetherness and that community. And uh, this movie almost has a very a special place in my heart simply because it came in, the imagery came into a space in my life that was uh, very dark and uncertain um, and continues to be a very hard, difficult road uh, for my dad and for the rest of my family. And so, um, Every time I watch it, <laughs> I can't separate myself and what's going on with my family from 
what I'm seeing on the screen. Um, and it's a very hopeful film in my mind. It's not a, a movie that feels um, dark. It's, it's actually a movie that gives me a lot of um, hope that one day we'll be able to see clearly um, what these storms look like and to um, do as Jessica Chastain does and say, okay, <laughs> in that moment. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, it's a very personal relevance for me. Um, and I think it's a personal relevance. It's, it's a story that can mean a lot for people who find themselves in similar situations as, as myself, um, whether it be mental illness or, or dementia or whatever it might be. Um, to recognize, to see a person basically um, be in a, like, shift into someone different and you don't know what's happening, um, but to lean into it and be there for them. Yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing that usually runs through my mind. Uh, if I thought about it more, I could probably uh, bring out some, some sociopolitical stuff, but no one cares about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, th th that's powerful, and I, I think that really attests to the metaphorical storms that we we considered at the end of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, so, thank you for sharing. Yeah, um, for sure. That that I can see how this would mean a lot in a situation like that, and I think it ties in with just the idea of trust. There's a lot of trusting that's having to happen in this film. There's trusting your instincts. Um, at times there's trusting your partner or your friends and it's not always a uh, this or that sometimes it's a this then that or sometimes they even align where your instincts and the people you love the people around you the the viewpoints the opinions the uh, actions line up with each other and in that way you're synchronized with each other and you're prepared with each other and you're stepping or leaning into things with each other. Um, but there are several moments in the film where Curtis is trusting in his own vision, in his own preparations. And then immediately after he will have to trust Samantha in the, just in the fact that she's his wife and she cares about him and she wants the best for him. And if he wants to be a part of that and continue being a part of that, he has to trust her and follow what she is asking of him. And uh, so I, th I think that's a, a powerful statement being made in the film as well, is just trusting and knowing when it is appropriate to do one or the other. And then the other one that I had down was uh, the idea of precaution versus excessiveness. And you have to uh, view this with the caveat that sometimes uh, Curtis was actually imagining things and sometimes Curtis was not imagining things. Um, so it goes either way. But like there are there's so many times in this film where Curtis is cutting ties with people and I mean with his dog, people who've not done him wrong. They haven't. They've been loyal to him. They've been friendly to him. They've been helpful to him. Um, it's only in his dreams that they've sort of betrayed him, and those are dreams. But still, out of precaution in his mind, but excessiveness from the viewpoint of anybody else, he cuts ties with those people, and 
removes him from his life. And thankfully his wife doesn't allow him to do that. But I, I, I hate to think it, I, he, he almost would have done that to them as well. If, uh, his wife hadn't just shown her support at the same time. Um, he, he also like even a simple example, the medicine, uh, you can actually see the label that uh, the, the sedatives that were prescribed to him. Uh, the label says take one per day. And the very first time he takes any, he takes two. And then the night where he has the seizure, he takes six. Um, and it's just in anticipation of these nightmares. He's being overly precautious to the point of excessiveness. And he pays a price for it. But on the, the flip side of all of that, he has this instinct. And it drives him. And he's doing everything he can to protect his family at whatever cost to his bank account or to his work life or to his personal life. And in that way, he sees it as precaution, as necessary preparation. And so obviously we're not going to be in everyday situations where we are debating over reality or not, or trying to figure out which is which. Um, But we can still sort of use that takeaway, look at it from the perspective of the outsiders where they see Curtis and he is driving people away in the interest of precaution, but that's taking it too far in most circumstances. For sure. So just something to consider at least. No, that's great. That's wonderful. I like both of those. Thanks. Any, anything else? No, I, I think I've pretty much said all I could say. Uh, I think the, the only thing I can really say from this point is it's, it's a movie that's definitely worth your time. Um, and I, I, uh, plea, uh, I send a plea to everybody to, uh, to find this film and, and, and take it in and let it, uh, wash over you. Cause I think it's, uh, well worth it. Uh, and I would say that for pretty much every single Jeff Nichols film he's, he's right now, he's probably one of my favorite directors. So, um, and just really, uh, appreciate his, his focus on, uh, emotion and how it, and, and relationships within the scope of his stories. Uh, they're very powerful. Yeah, and all of our other takeaways, we, we talked about basically in our character discussions where you have models of uh, husband-wife relationship and of friendship and all these other things that we, we talked about pretty in-depth earlier. Um, there, there, there really is a lot to take away from this movie. I still have it rented on iTunes for like another 43, 44 hours, so I nice. might watch it again. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but I'm certainly interested in diving into more of Jeff Nichols' films and uh, watching this one again eventually, whether it's in the next day or two or uh, a month or two down the line or however long. Um, but uh, thank you for recommending it because yeah, I, sure. I really enjoyed it and took a lot away from it. Awesome. Now, I'm, I'll be excited to, if you do end up watching again the next couple of days. You'll have to let me know what you think on the second <laughs> viewing. <laughs> I will. We'll do for sure. <laughs> And uh, with that, I think that's the end of the official 64th episode of Cinescope. Play the Paul McCartney. We're 64 years old. Sweet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please give us a rating or a review on iTunes uh, or on your podcast app on your iOS device. And if you have any additional feedback or ideas, you can email the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a film like this one or like whatever film that you really enjoy watching that you think you could talk about, let me know and we'll see if we can fit you into the schedule sometime. 
Now, Blake, where can we find you online? So the best place to find me is uh, probably on Twitter at Blake I Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R. And it's the same thing on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash Blake I Collier. And if I'm not egotistical enough at this point, uh, I've got a website called www.blakeicollier.com uh, <laughs> where all of my articles and published works and podcasts can be found for your perusal. And uh, I love feedback. I love um, talking to people on Twitter and on Facebook. So uh, please find me. Uh, we'll, we'll have some interesting discussions, I'm sure. Yes, definitely go back and find Blake's work elsewhere. Go back and listen to his previous episodes on Cinescope, where we talked about The Strangers back last October. We talked about Gross Point Blank earlier this year. Um, and there will be additional contact links for him, like your Twitter account and your Letterboxd page. Yes. All those kind of things will be in the show notes. Now, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And then Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And don't forget, I've got another podcast now called An American Workplace. Episode 16 released yesterday as of when you are hearing this episode. And you can find that where website or where podcasts can be found and at the website WorkplacePodcast.com. We are just now starting season three of The Office, so we're moving right along. Now, show notes and contact information for this show can be found at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you, Blake. It's always great having you on the show. Uh, thank you. It's, it's been fun, and, uh, and I'm always looking forward to the next time. Me too. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 64. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 65. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.